1: And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends
2: Collection. Hey everyone, I'm Stephen Hayden, And I'm Jordan Runtog. Join us as we unveil our new music podcast, Rivals. It's a look back at famous music rivalries of the past. Every week, Jordan and I will explore a new rivalry, delving into all the dirty details about our beloved musical icons who just can't seem to get along with their fellow legends. And then we'll debate each other about who deserves to have the upper hand in these classic conflicts. You'll remember the biggest beast from music history and hopefully become aware of some you didn't know. Join us on Rivals, a new podcast from iHeartRadio debuting on February
1: 26th. Listen and follow on the The iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to
3: your favorite podcasts. Hey, this is Bridget. And this is Annie. And you're listening to Stuff Mom Never Told You. So some of y'all might have listened to my good friend Annie's first official Sminty episode as a co-host, all about bad feminism, our feminism, how we became feminists. And honestly, I was so inspired, Annie, by your poignant sharing of your kind of sometimes a bumpy journey to feminism.
1: Yeah, very kind of bumpy. <laughs> and I was very, honestly, shy to tell that story and come out Swinging of the gate. I'm a bad feminist, but the the response from everyone has been so great and so welcoming. and I really appreciate it and thank you, Bridget, for convincing me <laughs> like you've got to do this. Um, it's just it's nice to share that with listeners that this kind of journey that we're all making mistakes in and trying to be better in and this community that helps us all hopefully get better at being feminist, even if we are still making mistakes.
3: Definitely. Well, one, that's sort of our kind of semi-motto for the show, learning and growing together. But I think the response that we got from you being so honest about your feminist journey, a lot of people identified with that journey. They said, I often felt like I couldn't call myself a feminist or I would feel like I'm not feminist enough or, you know, I'm not this enough or not that enough. So it's certainly something that people um, grapple with. I also thought it was really interesting that you talked about the ways that the earlier iterations of this show, "Stuff Mom Never Told You," really helped you own your feminism. That working behind the scenes as a producer on that show really helped you. One kind of get a crash course in all these different issues, and then two help you own like, hell yeah, I'm a feminist. You know, from the girl who wanted to get her own textbook when she was in <laughs> school. If you if you remember that story, Annie told it's a good one. Um, to this. Badass Feminist Podcast co-host.
1: Oh my! Thank you. Yeah, it, it was so instrumental, and I'm not exaggerating when I say it, it changed the course of my life. It gave me so much perspective, and I don't know where I would be—probably <laughs> still like too embarrassed to make cookies for anyone, but (laughs) wanting to make cookies for people. Grappling with the cookies. (laughs) The cookie issue. It's going to
3: haunt me for the rest of my life. Uh, Well, Annie, you are actually not alone. So I was so inspired by that episode and your honesty that I put out a little bit of a call on social media. And I said, hey, feminists, what was the thing that made you a feminist? And as we know, for Annie, part of that was Sminty. And you are not alone. Karina on Twitter agrees with you. She said that earlier iterations of Stuff Mom Never Told You really helped shape her feminism. She wrote, I started listening as I turned 20 back when Molly and Kristen were my dream team. They opened my eyes to many issues that impact women on a daily basis. I am a feminist because of all the women that have hosted the show, and they've taught me and inspired me to be. Which I think is so nice. It's it's almost like a similar thing to what you went through.
1: Yeah, it is very much similar. Um... Podcasting is such an interesting thing because it can be solitary sometimes because you're in a room and we're talking together and it's lovely. But to hear from other people that are sharing this experience with you is so rewarding. And I I connect to that so much because I was a listener too. I was hearing it in my ears and thinking like, wow, I've never considered all of this, 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 this. And there are women that are thinking like me and it, it gave me the strength that I needed to become a loud and proud feminist. Yeah,
3: and the co-host of a feminist podcast. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Another person on Twitter who um, I, I loved their response. This is from at BreePants, Pants. Uh, one of my favorite Twitter users, actually. It's hilarious. Um, they said that Sailor Moon, an all-girl team saving the world. Yes, please. The Spice Girls, which I used to love when I was growing up. Destiny's Child, Xena, and strangely enough, Catwoman, a victim turned villain with her own agency, is it? Can you relate to that?
1: Yes, I may or may not dress up as Catwoman once a year. Oh my gosh! Wait <laughs> for a holiday or for an event. No, no just, just around, around the house. <laughs> yeah, just making an omelet in a
3: Catwoman suit. I can see someone, you, someone coming to your place and you being like, "I'm going to slip into something more comfortable," and then you come back in a Catwoman costume <laughs> just to see their
1: reaction. <laughs> Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm. We're painting this very strange picture of my um, outside of work life, and I don't. Uh, I'm not opposed to it. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah, people. You should. People should get to know the real Annie as yeah. I do, because it's glorious.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Another Twitter user Spotlight Inc- on inclusion said, "At Annie DeFranco lyrics, she opened my ears to struggles I hadn't yet encountered, but it meant I was more prepared and knew what things shouldn't be tolerated. I learned that strong women call out bullshit." but can still love tenderly and find meaning in small moments which i i love that too because one of my biggest pet peeves especially in media is the strong woman who that's all she is like you get rid of all femininity and she's this one dimensional strong lady but it's okay to be to love tenderly and be have these feminine things and still be a feminist and be strong. We can be multi-dimensional complex people. We can. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> I I definitely I love seeing that and hearing that um just women calling out bullshit and being strong, but also still
3: being women. Yeah, I, I relate to spotlight on inclusion so much on this because I probably no surprise. I loved Amy DeFranco growing up. Um, I thought she was so rad and so cool, and you know, I, I had a shirt that said Righteous Bitch, was, which was the name of the, her recording label, but as, as this, this Twitter user points out, her music was very strong, and it was strong women calling out bullshit. but it was also very tender. Um, whenever I go through a tough, romantic time, you can bet and listening to Untouchable Face, <laughs> which if you know that song, you know it's like a perfect song to it's a very good breakup song. It's a very good, you know, um, yeah, just good note for yeah. me. If I hear that song, <laughs> I'll be like, oh, there's a great line. I mean, this is this is really like if you really want to get to some emo, Bridget, there's a great line on that song where she says, um, it's F- you and your untouchable face, F- you for existing in the first place. And who am I that I should be longing for your touch? Who am I? You can't even give me that much. It's like, yes. You know, but it's also very sad and very tender. So yeah. yeah, I I think this Twitter user really nails what it is about those lyrics where it's just like what you were saying. On the one hand, it's very strong and very independent, but on the other hand, it's very tender and touching and loving and poignant. Um it's the it's the beautiful mess that is the modern day feminist, I guess. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Contained an Annie DeFranco lyric. Exactly. We should do an episode on her.
1: I would love it. I'm so impressed that you just busted that out right now. I
3: could... I might... This is embarrassing. I might know every Ani DiFranco song by heart. And there was one night where I got very drunk in a bar with my friend Stephanie. Shout out to Stephanie Black. Um where we were—I I, want to I want to say it was a karaoke bar, but I, it wasn't. We were just drunk <laughs> and screaming the lyrics to Ani DeFranco songs.
1: <laughs> and I'm sure you thought you sounded amazing. Oh, girl.
3: <laughs> yeah, shout out to that bar that didn't kick us out but probably should have.
1: Yeah, very, very kind of you to yeah. let them live that moment. You know,
3: sometimes your drunk feminist rage cannot be contained. Oh,
1: I know about that.
3: <laughs> <laughs> so what I loved about these responses on Twitter— was that it really makes you think, you know, what was the thing that made me become a feminist? Like, what were some of the figures and celebrities and media and uh, things that really helped me own that label? And in the episode that you did around your your journey to feminism, I shared that one of the things for me was Bitch Magazine. And, you know, I talked a bit about this on that episode, if y'all have heard it, but, you know, I grew up in the middle of nowhere, and I grew up in a really white, small town, and I spent a lot of my young adult life feeling out of place and not really sure how or where I fit in with the world and thinking, gee, if I, maybe I'll never feel like I belong anywhere. Maybe this is just my life. Like, I'll always feel like the oddball. And, you know, when I was in high school, I listened to music like Hole, and I I still love Hole, and um, La Tigre, and all these great sort of, like, Riot Grrrl musicians that I really loved. And I loved music. I was also drawn to movies and TV shows that sort of had a, um, had, heroines or main characters who were sort of like troubled and wayward young women. I'm I'm talking about things like The Craft, if you see oh, that, yeah. which I can probably quote in its entirety. Foxfire, which is a, a movie based on a Joyce Carroll Oates book about a group of sort of wayward girls who form a kind of a girl gang. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, things like Buffy, things like Girl Interrupted, anything involving like a dark, wayward, misunderstood uh-huh. female protagonist, I was like in. And I don't think I quite realized it, but these were like the early budding kind of feminist seedlings inside of me. And it wasn't until encountering Bitch Magazine that those seedlings kind of became a plant and it all crystallized. I was like, "Oh, I'm a feminist. That's the word." That's why I like all these like weird dark movies and all these women screaming in my ears and my in my earphones. That's what this is. Like it, it really was like a like the stars all aligned. And you know, growing up in a small town, I remember the the series of events that led to this very clearly. Barnes & Noble, you know, in a, that was in, in a small— this is going to sound dumb, but when you're in a small town, that was, like, the height of cosmopolitan oh, life. Yes.
1: Was it the same for you? I had to get—I had to drive 30 minutes oh to a Barnes & and Noble. And I—it was such a—like, we would hang out there. Same, same, same. We would get coffee and yes. just, like, look at the
3: place. That's, like, a very specific—like, when you live in the middle of nowhere, that yeah. is, like, a very specific thing— driving to the Barnes & Noble in your town, even if it's, like, far away, mm-hmm. to sit and drink coffee and just be around books. And yeah. for you, that feels like, oh. I mean, I, I felt like I was, like, living in Manhattan, like, <laughs> yes. hanging
1: out in the village or like something. Like, you should have had a martini in Yes, hands. like,
3: that was the height of cosmopolitan life right mm-hmm. there. It's, <laughs> yeah. like, in stain, Virginia when I was growing up.
1: <laughs> That's what they must be doing in Manhattan. <laughs>
3: Yeah, drinking a caramel macchiato at a Starbucks in your school uniform at 4 p.m. That is what people in New York do.
1: Yes, yes. And looking forward to perusing the aisles, every aisle of book, that's what I would do. I'd walk down every aisle and be like, maybe I could read that. Yeah, maybe let myself pick out one book.
3: Yeah, and and it's, it's, it's wild because the experience of going to Barnes & Noble felt kind of new and exciting and different for me and it, and it signaled oh possibility outside of my really small town and there was possibility outside of like the things I saw around me because it was difficult to get access to other kinds of things and I know people who are a bit younger maybe are like ever heard of the internet but
1: listen <laughs> uh-uh.
3: I am 32 years old wait am I 32 or 33 <laughs> I just want a birthday sidebar I know.
1: <laughs> how old is Bridget
3: I'm in my 30s, right? So when I was growing up, like we didn't get a computer in our house until I was almost off to college. I didn't have my first personal computer that I owned until I was a sophomore in college. Like I showed up to college without a computer, I don't think. I mean, because we had computer right. labs. That was the thing. Yeah. And so I think that younger folks forget what it was like to not really have easy access to things that showed you the world outside of your own backyard. And... You know, when we when we got a computer in our kitchen, it was that dial-up. And yes. it, just, it wasn't the same as now, where if you want feminist perspectives, you Google it, and there's a, th- a trillion things out there. It wasn't like that. And so even as someone who was interested in different kinds of music, finding—getting my hands on that music was a slog. It involved conning my dad, who luckily was a big jazz fan— having him drive me into the city of Richmond so we could go to this record store, Plan 9 Music, which is still there today, (laughs) and I had to sell—there had to be something that he wanted, so there had to be, like—it had to coincide with, oh, there's this new jazz record out that I want, and Bridget wants to go dig through the whatever music, you know, the whatever feminist band, whatever, and it involved, like, asking my dad to drive me on the off chance that it was, like, he wanted to go to, going and then hoping they had whatever I wanted in stock, and— you know, if they didn't, it was like, can you order it? And then that was another thing. So, like, in two weeks, I got to figure out how I'm going to get back there. Yeah. And it was, it wasn't, I mean, part of it was kind of fun because it was like hunting things down and it was like a little bit of a treasure hunt. But, you know, people take for granted what that was like. And these days, you have everything at your fingertips. And back then, it just wasn't the case.
1: Yeah. Um, Bridget and I had a conversation off mic about how I also had the one dial up computer, and the connection was so slow that it would take time. I had a Hotmail email, and it would take probably 15 minutes for it to load. And I was really big into fan fiction. Um, <laughs> and I, because we had to share the computer and everyone had a 30 minute block, I would print out the fan fiction so I could take it to my room, I'd staple it together. <laughs> And I would take it to my room and read it. And sometimes the fan fiction was crappy, and I was really disappointed by it because I didn't have time to read it.
3: Because you'd spent all this time, all your allotted hour of computer time, printing this stuff out. Yes.
1: And then I'm like, well, this is—what a waste. (laughs) We got to wait till tomorrow in my 30 minutes and hope I find a better one.
3: (laughs) Yeah. God, those were the days, right?
1: What a strange experience to explain to people now. I mean,
3: it's explain that to someone who— grew up always having a smartphone right they would, oh. they, would,
1: they would be like what are you they wouldn't
3: they would be like, what are you <laughs> talking about what <laughs> dial up
1: what that makes you <laughs> who were you were, are you and okay then, and then my mom would get on the phone oh and, my
3: god remember when your mom would pick up the phone you'd be like i'm on the internet <laughs> <laughs> hang up the phone <laughs> oh my god nothing nothing would ruin your day faster yeah and my mom was always like what are you doing up there <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you hear
3: stops coming. You're like, oh, no. It's always like, oh, man. There needs to be a podcast on, like, the very early days of yeah. the Internet. because I'm sure there is, but that was—it was, it it was sh- such a specific and unique experience.
1: It really was. It really was. And I—another I, um, thing, too, people don't think about is maps and, like, making plans. And I, I remember I used to print out these maps, and I would draw on them, like, here— <laughs> Now you just put in your GPS. I and know. Find- anyway, we are getting away from this <laughs> whole oh podcast is just like, you darn
3: kids. Yeah. But fun fact, I, my my dad still has those. Remember those giant road atlases that were yes. like huge? He still has those in his car. <laughs> I don't know, but that must be a
1: dad thing. We're yeah. like not throwing out these good atlases. Yeah, you never know when you're gonna need an atlas. I'm like, okay. <laughs> you're you're right. I can't I can't argue with that. Okay,
3: so to bring it back, so this isn't just a podcast about you darn kids. Yeah, you don't know back anything about you, you darn queens. <laughs> Basically, bitch magazine was foundational to me becoming a feminist and owning a, owning feminism, understanding feminism. I remember very very clearly the first time that I saw it in Barnes and Noble and I thought, "Bitch, what is that?" You know, I had never seen a magazine that was so in your face, so unapologetic. You know, there have been other magazines that were sort of feministy that I knew about that I that Barnes and Noble did not carry for whatever reason. I'm talking about magazines like Bust and Jane and Sassy. Yeah. But Bitch was different for me because it felt like a kind of magazine that you where you weren't being sold something all the time, was very sort of skeptical and critical, which I which I identified with. And yeah, I remember my mom wouldn't actually let me have it in the house because it had a dirty word on the cover, so I'd have to rip off the cover so she wouldn't see um she wouldn't see what I had and yeah, honestly, like reading I mean I had interviews with like bell hooks and things like that things that I would have never ever been had access to and honestly, when you're young and you feel marginalized and isolated and you don't feel like you have a lot of people who understand you, and I guess a lot of teens feel that way, whether you're a feminist or a woman or whatever, I think that's part of being a young person. When you find something that you feel like speaks to you and that you feel like provides a glimpse of what the world could be like outside of your small town or whatever, um, and that there are people out there that think like you, feel like you, have the same ideas as you, that's huge. For me, that was like, I was like a pair of wings. I was like, oh my God. And, you know, when I was in school, I went to a small, prestigious Catholic girls high school in Richmond, Virginia And my school was great. My school was full of really amazing and talented, strong women. Um, They had a real tradition of social justice and social change and activism that these nuns displayed uh, at my school, which I I loved and I, I was very, I cherished even to this day. But they weren't talking about what to do when your boyfriend rapes you or, you know, how to be a feminist if you feel isolated from feminism because you're not a white woman. People in my school were talking about in the importance of being a strong woman, which was great, but they weren't talking about it in terms of, like, issues that I could understand, and this was the first time that, that was I was sort of exposed to that, and so it was huge. It
1: was huge for me. It's amazing how much just knowing that there are other people out there, that you're not the only one, how beneficial that is and how much that can, like, gird you and provide support. For you to continue to flourish in your path, and to know that there's there's something outside of this, there's something waiting for me that I can I can latch onto that I can do later. Definitely, life. yeah,
3: definitely. Well, that's why I am so 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 excited and kind of fangirling that we're about to be joined by none other than Bitch Magazine co-founder Andy Zeisler after this quick break.
1: So, you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls experience in a spoiler-free
0: zone. The all-new, all-hilarious season of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and stream anytime.
3: And we're back! I am so, 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 so excited to be joined by Andy Zeisler. Andy is a longtime freelance writer and illustrator, and she co founded Bitch Media in 1996. These days, Bitch is circulated internationally to more than 50,000 people. Andy's work has appeared in numerous major publications like Miss, Mother Jones, Bust, and the San Francisco Chronicle. Today, we are so excited to be welcomed in studio with the one, the only Bitch co founder, Andy Zeisler. Andy, thank you so much for being here today.
2: Thanks for having me. So, Andy, uh,
3: I, I opened this podcast talking about how foundational Bitch Magazine was to, you know, high school Bridget and her understanding of feminism. It's one of the reasons why I host a, I, I co-host a feminist podcast is because of Bitch. It was really the thing that opened my eyes. And um, it's interesting, in doing research for this episode, this great documentary filmmaker, um, Amy Zierig, she was an early subscriber to Bitch. She recalls that when um, Bitch first got started— it was the kind of thing that you dreamed should exist, but didn't exist. And I think that's very, very true. So I think when I when I talk to you, I think, gee, Andy's the kind of person who thinks, oh, X, Y, Z should exist, and then makes it, right? Like, that seems to be kind of who you are. So I just wanted to start by by asking, like, what made you a feminist? Like, what, what was your upbringing like? How did you become the kind of person that, you know, sees this, this need and, and creates it?
2: Oh, well, first of all, I just want to say, you know, thank you so much for, for your kind words because that, like, hearing that, that bitch really affected people and, and changed their thinking and inspired them is like, that's literally why we do this. Like, nobody is in this for, you know, the money. <laughs> you know, like, feminist, uh, independent media really is, like, it's, it's just all about trying to, to make a difference and, you know, seeing that you know, even a few people out in the world um, being inspired by it can can really lead to a lot of cool stuff happening. So, so yeah, thanks for that. It's funny. Like, I don't remember. You know, I, I think there are like individual moments in my upbringing where I, you know, I, I sort of clocked that something was unfair, or like I recognized an instance of. Uh, sexism or just kind of like ambient discrimination, but I didn't have any language for it. You know, it it wasn't like my parents were particularly political. Well, first of all, I read a ton of books. And so I think the first time I saw the word feminist or learned about the concept of feminism wasn't in school. It was probably in... Uh, like a young adult novel by Norma Klein, who was this New York writer who wrote these incredibly, uh, you know, meaty intellectual novels about, like, you know, earnest white liberal kids in New York City sort of discovering their sexuality or whatnot. And so there were often, like, feminist characters that she would write about, and it wasn't it just wasn't a big deal. It was like, oh, yeah, this person is a feminist and this is what she believes. Um, and so I think that was where I first heard the con- like heard of the concept and, and recognized it. Um, and then, you know, at some point, I just must have put it together with stuff that I, like I said, stuff that I sort of recognized as being a feeling off to me. Like the fact, for instance, that like... Uh, my brother, one of my, one of my older brothers, took home Mac in junior high, so he knew how to use a sewing machine, and yet my mother would constantly ask me to, like, mend his clothing. Like, can you hem your brother's jeans, or, like, can you sh- sew this button on your brother's shirt? And it's not that I minded doing it. I just minded that I should be the one to do it, even though he actually had the skills to do it, you know? So it was a lot of stuff like that.
1: Yeah, I can totally relate to that. Bridget and I have discussed before that we like cooking. but We don't like being expected to be the one to cook. It's a very yeah. like particular line of, yeah, I don't mind doing this thing, but I don't want to be expected to be the one to do it either.
2: Yeah, the chores in my house were just extremely gendered. Yeah, And I was sort of like, this doesn't make sense, like, I like taking the garbage out. Why can't I take the garbage out? Like why do I have to clear the dinner table? Just
3: yeah. Yeah. That that was the case in my house too. To this day, I have never mowed a lawn in my life. It's never happened once. <laughs> I've never touched a lawnmower. <laughs> because that's my it was like that's your that's a boy job, quote unquote, you know? Right,
1: yeah. Um could you talk a little bit about how a bitch got started?
2: So um my Best friend from high school. We went to we went to different colleges, but we stayed in touch. And um, when we graduated, uh, we just, dis- you know, we decided that we were going to spend the summer together. And she was planning to move to uh, the Bay Area in San Francisco from New York, where we were from. And I didn't really know what I was doing. I just wasn't really sure. I was, like, maybe going to apply to grad school, but I also didn't really know. And um, so she was like, let's just, you know, let's just drive cross-country and you can see how you like California. And uh, and I ended up, you know, really liking living there. And um, a lot of what we did, uh, we, you know, we had, like, pretty um, normal grunt work sort of day job. She worked in a bookstore. I worked in an art supply store. And during all our free time, we consumed pop culture. We went to the movies, we bought magazines and sort of read them and shared them. We were constantly reading books. Uh, I was super into music and ended up becoming like a music journalist. And we just realized at some point how much time we were spending talking amongst ourselves about how media and pop culture really didn't seem to be evolving to reflect uh, the kind of real world that we saw around us. Both of us at separate times when we were living in New York, for me it was right after high school, uh, were interns at Sassy Magazine, which was um, a teen magazine that was started specifically to kind of counter the status quo of teen magazines where, you know, they were filled with diet tips, and they sort of centered, you know, boys and prom as the, you know, going concerns of a teenage girl's life. And Sassy, which was based off of an Australian magazine called Dolly, really went in a different direction, Uh, It was very much about, like, well, you know, why should boys be the center of your life? Or, like, it's great to be an individual. Um, And so interning there was a really interesting uh, sort of lesson in how the mainstream media sausage gets made. And at the time uh, that Lisa and I were, you know, sort of doing all this talking about pop culture and talking about how it didn't really reflect our lives or the lives of the people we knew, uh, Sassy Magazine, it didn't fold, but it got bought by a very large media conglomerate, and it kind of got zombified. Like, we, we called it bizarro Sassy, because they, they, they fired all the, the really interesting writers and editors and they brought in a new crop, and they tried to sort of mimic the tone and the attitude of the original Sassy, but it was, like, it was just so embarrassing. Mm. It, was just, it just, like, didn't work.
3: You can always tell when, when it's, like, people are faking the funk. You know, it's supposed <laughs> to be authentic, yeah. and you're like, this is super not authentic and in fact, it's embarrassing.
2: Yeah, it's sort of like the scene in Mean Girls where Amy Poehler's like, I'm not a regular mom, I'm a cool mom. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, uh, the, the new Sassy was absolutely like, it was, it was, yeah, it was embarrassing, it was mortifying. And, um, and so we started talking about like the idea that, it, you know, in, in kind of mourning the demise of Sassy, we were sort of like, there needs to be something to fill that gap. There needs to be something that, you know, has a feminist spirit, but also meets teenagers where they're at. Um, And Ms., for a long time, had been, you know, the feminist magazine. And actually, when I worked, when I was an Internet sassy, Ms. was a few floors up in the one Times Square building. And so I was always running up there to get, like, old copies for research, Um, But at the time, this was around like 1994, 1995, uh, Ms. was really no longer engaging with media and pop culture as sort of a locus of feminism. It had really, you know, turned toward incredibly meaty, you know, global investigative reporting, which was great. But it really, there was that lack. And, And Lisa and I were just, you know, we were kind of frustrated readers. We were looking to read the kind of stuff that we were talking about and that we wanted to write about, but there really wasn't much out there. I mean, there was, you know, there was very academic writing about media and pop culture, like, you know, bell hooks and, and folks like that. And then there was, like, maybe the occasional article in, like, Rolling Stone or Spin that might engage with, you know, feminism or sexism in the music industry. But there was nothing, obviously, like there is now because this was just at the start of the Internet. Um, and so, yeah, at some point we realized, like, well, the, the stuff we want to read, we might have to be the ones to write it. Um, and so it really was, in our minds, like, this is stuff that we want to read, and we also see this as, like, a, a hole in, in the market you know, or, or in the possibilities of, you know, reading material and sort of inspiration for, for teenagers, and, um, and so that was how we started Conceiving of Bitch, was like, what if there was something that was a cross between Sassy and Miz that really acknowledged how central media and pop culture are. To young people who are sort of forming their impressions about the world and about politics and about their place, um, and that was, you know, that was how it started. That, that was perfect.
1: Was great. Yeah,
3: <laughs> <That's> <laughs> where, I mean, you you really teased out my experience as a teenage reader of Bitch. You know, my um, I shared earlier on the show that my mom wasn't the biggest fan of Bitch magazine because it had a dirty word on the cover, <laughs> and she would buy me Ms. magazine instead, and. Just like you said, I mean, Ms. Magazine was dealing with very important global issues that I'm glad they were dealing with. But, you know, I was 14. I wasn't, I wasn't, that wasn't what I was trying to read. And I felt, when I was just sort of grappling with what it was to be a feminist, Bitch spoke to me in a way that said, like, hey, you're, maybe you're watching Buffy a lot. Maybe you're doing this a lot. Maybe you're doing that a lot. Well, you can take a feminist critique of those things. You know, maybe you love watching this thing or dealing with this piece of pop culture that can be understanding how that works can be a part of your feminism and an expression of your feminism. That was the first time that I'd ever encountered that. And it really just met me where I was. Because you know what? When I was 14, I wish I was, but I wasn't the kind of 14-year-old who was interested in researching global poverty and its impact on women, you know, in the world. (laughs) I wish I was, but I was not. I was watching Buffy the (laughs) Vampire Slayer and was wanting someone to give me a, a feminist critique of that through that lens. And Bitch was the magazine that helped me deal with that and helped me understand that. So what, what you're saying is, I mean, I was like, yep, exactly that. That's exactly how it
0: felt.
2: Right. And that was kind of our hunch was like, well, we can't be the only people out. You know, we are obviously not the only people out there that, you know, has these thoughts and, and wants to talk about them. And so we really... We were just like, well, we have to, you know, we have to chase this hunch that there is an audience for this, um, and that other people, you know, see popular culture and media as a way to uh, kind of talk about, you know, gender and feminism and power and sex, um, and yeah. So <laughs> that's that's kind of what we that's kind of what we were hoping.
3: How did y'all become? from interns at, at Sassy to financing your own media publication. Like, that's that's the thing I'm like, how did that happen?
2: Well, we started incredibly small. We started as a zine. We were like, you know, black and white zine. And this was a time when zines were kind of having a moment. Um, and I had been like an avid reader of zines uh, starting when I was, you know, early, early on in college, um, partly because of, uh, partly because of Fassy, which had like a little zine of the month feature. And, you know, there was a big, uh, there was a publication called fact sheet five that just listed all of the zines in the world that were being produced by category. And so, you know, you'd put $2 in the mail and, um, you know, at least 85% of the time you'd get a zine back um and so I was really It wasn't a perfect <laughs> You know, I would have like glitter in the envelope, you know, what oh, I mean like yeah. there, was, there was this very like communal sense of like we're all, you know, let's put on a show. We're all doing this. Um and so we knew that, you know, we weren't going to come out, you know, blazing with like a business plan and like a full color thing. We wanted to kind of see, you know, kind of dip our toes in the independent media market. And we knew from the start that whatever we were going to do with this publication uh, was not going to be appealing to, like, a large or mainstream market. You know, we knew that the kind of content we were hoping to publish was going to be very critical of mainstream media, of advertising, of uh, kind of, you know, the kind of gender mythology that's pushed by uh, women's magazines and men's magazines. And so for us, it wasn't really a question. It was like, okay, so we're going to do this with the resources we have, which are not much. Um, there was a great museum in San Francisco, the Cartoon Art Museum, and they would have like public panels on things like you know drawing comics or making zines. And we went to we went to one of the ones that was on you know how to how to create and distribute your own zine, and that was sort of the moment where we were like, holy wow, we could actually do this, um, and so we did, and we. Ha- definitely, like our parents kicked in, and Lisa's grandfather kicked in some money, but we're not talking like big bucks here. I think the entire first print run maybe cost three hundred dollars, and you know we we were we thought we were it was just going to be Xerox, but the the place the Xerox place we took it actually messed up and ended up offset printing it. so the first issue actually looked really good um. <laughs> and then what we did is we just, you know, put boxes of it in Lisa's, you know, old station wagon and just drove around and went to every independent bookstore in Berkeley and Oakland and San Francisco. And at that time because zines were sort of having this moment, you could walk in and say like, "Oh, I have this zine, do you want to sell it on consignment?" The Bay Area at that time was really just, you know, brimming with independent DIY media, so we were definitely in the right place at the right time. I think if we had been in New York, um, we wouldn't have had that kind of, uh, there wouldn't have been that sort of instant uh, community and recognition that this is like part of something bigger. We started taking subscriptions immediately and had like a charter subscriber price, and people started subscribing, and uh, it was, it was kind of wild, and, 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 you know, and so we knew, like, oh, okay, so this is something we should, we should definitely keep doing. We should try to make this as, you know, kind of formal a process as we can and try to have a publish, publishing schedule and, um, and give ourselves deadlines and, and find, you know, writers and things like that. So, yeah, it, uh, you know, we, we definitely flew by the seat of our pants. And I often think that, you know, it's probably good that we knew kind of very little about magazine distribution and production because it might have scared us off
0: if we had known too much.
3: Let's take a quick break.
0: Okay. So a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair.
1: we're back going back to the name and the trouble it, it got bridget in
3: <laughs> yeah you you i i feel like uh you're responsible for getting me grounded a few times
2: i'm very sorry
1: <laughs> totally
3: worth it Tell I'm your sure. mom.
1: <laughs> <laughs> why did you call it bitch
2: you know it's easy for me to say because <laughs> she's not here but um my co-editor lisa uh was very much uh, the kind... Like, it was very much her project in the beginning. Like, she had, like, a, you know, she was the stronger personality, and um, she was much more decisive than I was. And so when we started talking about names, you know, it, it, we, didn't, we did not, like, have that many options on the table when she was like, I think we should call it bitch, because it's a noun and it's a verb. And I was like, well, that's cool. That's enough for me. Um, And, of course, we did talk about it. We talked about the fact that, like, well, the kind of stuff that we want to write about and that we want to publish is absolutely the kind of content that is going to be... (laughs) is going to get us tagged with that label. Um, In 1995, there wasn't the word bitch didn't have the kind of um sort of multifarious uses that it has now it very much still was uh the word that you used to describe a woman who was you know saying something you didn't like or doing something in a way you didn't like or you know standing up to other people it didn't have uh the kind of friendly or, like, casual connotations or usage that it does now. You weren't hearing it on TV or on the radio. Um, It very much still was one of those, like, seven dirty words that you couldn't say. And we thought about the idea of, you know, what if we could reclaim this word for women who were strong and who stood up for themselves and who really wanted to, to talk about the ways that gender functions and that sexism functions in media and pop culture. The, the reason we had the you know, sort of tagline, a feminist response to pop culture, is that we really did want to have the word feminist in there somewhere, but we also kind of wanted a subtitle that was a little bit explanatory Um, because we knew that the word bitch would probably draw people in if they saw it on a newsstand. But we wanted them to also see very clearly that this was uh, a feminist project.
3: I love that. So you've mentioned a little bit about how the name bitch, how it was sort of had a different connotation back when y'all first got started. I'm curious, sort of along those lines— what was the feminist media landscape like when 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 you were putting Bitch together? I mean, today there seems like it, there's so many feminist publications and sort of feminist ish publications, you know, where it's kind of feministy, but who knows? Um what's what was the landscape like and sort of what how is it different than our, our current feminist media landscape?
2: Yeah. Um I mean it was very different. But, you know, so we started Bitch in nineteen ninety five and In the early 90s, um, again, when we were both uh, interning and and very interested in Sassy, we were aware that there was uh, a sort of, there was sort of a a feminism that was coalescing and a lot of it was really centered in media and pop culture. So, like the Riot Grrrl movement, for instance, which uh, started getting a lot of notice you know, in the early 90s, around 1991, um, that was something that was, you know, very explicitly based in popular culture. It was a response to, uh, you know, sexism in the punk music scene. It was a response to, uh, you know, a kind of general sense that even these supposed alternative subcultures that were supposed to set themselves apart from mainstream culture were still replicating a lot of the gender and power dynamics of the things that they were supposedly against. And so riot girl zines and riot girl art projects and newsletters were very much a new way to talk about feminism and at the same time in the wake of the Anita Hill and Clarence uh, Thomas hearings the the third wave of feminism was was starting to become a thing. And uh, Rebecca Walker, Alice, Alice Walker's daughter, had had coined that phrase, third wave. And so there was, some, there was this sense of like a little bit of a, you know, kind of groundswell of feminist thought and activity. There is something out there. Ms. is no longer, you know, the only game in town as far as feminist media, we could, we could show up and, and feel that we had sort of comrades uh, in this space.
3: Yeah, so, I mean, I, I completely agree having sort of existed while all of these things were bubbling up. Um, and a couple of things that set Bitch apart from magazines, like magazines that I enjoyed, like Bust and Sassy and, and Miss, one was that, you know, you didn't really feel like you were being sold to a lot when you read Bust. There were ads... And in a lot of magazines, the the if you feel like you're reading a magazine full of ads with a few articles, Bitch was not like that at all. Like, it was very much about the content of the magazine, and there were ads, but, like, not that many, and oftentimes very small, and you just didn't feel like you were being sold and marketed to. And as a as a teenage girl, that's all you see, right? Like, you're getting bombarded all the time. Buy this lip gloss. Buy this. Buy that. You're too fat. Buy these pills. Like, yeah. it's hard. It's almost, like, inescapable. And so— when I would read bitch, it's like, oh, it's a little bit of a escape from that. And I don't I know that's something that you've written about, Andy. In your book, We Were Feminists Once, you write a lot about how these days, you know, feminism is cool. It's marketable, like it's it's on trend and on brand to, to brand yourself as as feminist, to just sell more. Shit. And, you know, in, in a kind of way, like, no shame to that. Like if you actually have feminist principles and you're you're marketing things. Alongside those values, sure, okay, but you know, I feel like Bitch was so skeptical of consumerist culture. Was that a, was that a, a conscious choice, like an editorial choice that y'all made from the beginning?
2: Definitely. I mean, um, like I said earlier, we knew that you know this was <laughs> this was we were not creating something that like advertisers were going to be clamoring to you know put their put their ads in. Um, and when when i was at sassy certainly you know one of the things i one of the things i realized that i i really hadn't thought about before was that you know in in mainstream magazines content is really just a vehicle for ads it's not the other way around like you sell ads you often have to create content that's adjacent to those ads or you have to promise that you know the, you know, the big ad for like Stuart Weitzman Shoes is going to run alongside a fashion spread that features Stuart Weitzman Shoes. In realizing that magazines are, or mainstream magazines are essentially a way to sell eyes to advertisers, that was a real sort of sea change in my understanding of magazines, which was a medium I had always just absolutely loved with Bitch, you know, because we knew that it wasn't, it didn't really have the kind of uh, draw for advertisers and because we knew that we were going to be critiquing ads and the way that that ads are used and the way that they are, the way that they sort of work on uh, particularly female psyches, it just didn't really occur to us. And that, that's why we you know sort of very quickly realized like, oh well we could we could be a non nonprofit like we could actually uh, find a different way to raise money than advertising, we could focus on you know getting sponsors or getting donors or and what we eventually did was you know becoming almost fully reader supported. We recognized very early on that we were not going to be an ad-driven magazine and that you know we certainly did want to kind of forge partnerships with like-minded organizations, whether they were other nonprofit organizations or they were you know record companies that were independent or publishers that were independent or like uh, university programs that you know wanted to get the word out about, you know, for instance, uh, you know their stem, their STEM programs or something like that. You know, if we were going to have advertisers, we wanted never to be in a position uh, where an ad that we would critique if it were in a mainstream magazine was in bitch. You know, we never wanted to have that possibility. Uh, So we tried to be very intentional about it, created a, a revenue model that was not dependent on ads.
1: Speaking of ads, um, the Postal Service censored an ad for dildos on the back cover, which is something I personally find hilarious now, because I, when I was home for Christmas, my mom had, like, a land and some of the, like, Land's End? Maybe. <laughs> Some magazine she got in the mail, and she was flipping through it, and, like, next to the lawnmowers was an entire page dedicated to different dildos. And we got such a big laugh out of it, just because it was so unexpected, like, in placing and just in that magazine at all. So can you tell us a little bit about
2: about this? Oh, God, yeah. The, the, the dildo fiasco. So, like, it was, it was so... I don't even remember, I don't even remember what happened. Like, I remember, I remember having a conversation where I was like, because I think I was in a lot of ways uh, very conservative um, in terms of what we were doing. Like, I, I have always been sort of a pessimist. So I'm pretty sure that I did not see that ad before it went to press because I'm, I feel positive that I would have been like, uh, we shouldn't do this. <laughs> like, we're going to get in trouble. But maybe I, I don't know. Maybe I was preoccupied. Maybe I did see like the picture of the giant purple dildo, and I was like, cool, carry on. Um, was it, I don't, I don't know if it was to, uh, Babeland or whether it was, I don't remember what company it was. But, you know, one of the regular sort of advertisers we had were female-owned sex toy stores. Um, and there were there were like a growing number at that time. Um, and so this issue went to press, and the back cover was, you know, a picture of sort of a, a woman's uh, crotch and her hand holding a dildo next to it. And pretty much as soon as the files got to the printer. We realized that, like, there was going to be a problem because the printer was like, uh, "Y'all want to rethink this dildo?" <laughs> <laughs> because <laughs> you're like, "No." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so um, it just it just absolutely sort of exploded. I mean, we we heard from uh, subscribers. We heard from parents of subscribers. We heard from educators. We heard from people who were like, God damn it, you guys, now I can't read my issue of Bitch on the Subway, <laughs> which, you know, we took very seriously. Uh-huh. <laughs> but um, but it, was, it wasn't until the Postal Service got involved that, that we were like, oh, no, this could actually really sink us uh, because what happens when there's something that the Postal Service deems obscene on your magazine cover or back cover you have to pay to have the the rest of the issues polybagged, um, and it's it can get really expensive when you're sending out you know thousands of copies to to pay to have each one polybagged, um, and it was you know we were worried about losing our you know bulk mail license, our media mail license. You know it was a it was a really interesting time because we. We're really finding out sort of the limits of uh, kind of progressivism and, and independent content. And, you know, obviously the Postal Service, that's a government organization, we should have expected that. But I was, I was, I ended up being really surprised by how many subscribers, uh, you know, who were 100% on board before were like, you know, I, Uh, I just don't want to have to explain to my child what this is. Or, like, I just don't want my parents to, you know, see this and associate it with me. And I fully understand all of that. Uh, I absolutely do. But it it was really interesting. I was like, yeah, you can call a magazine bitch and you can have, you know, very explicitly feminist content. But... There is always going to be a line in the sand, it seems like, for people. And for a lot of people, that line in the sand was, you know, a huge purple dildo.
3: <laughs> that, might be my, that might be my favorite sentence ever uttered on this podcast. <laughs> for a lot of people, the line in the sand was a purple dildo. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's pretty excellent. <laughs> I, meanwhile, I, uh, I took pictures of this, this magazine that I was talking about. Uh, it was Whatever Works— just for like everyone's.
3: Oh, my! And the dildos are purple. Okay, you yes. can't see this in the studio, but Annie is showing me the spread of the Whatever Works magazine,
1: and it's it's wow! The art of the orgasm, orgasm DVD. Orgasm DVD tease me. Wow. Um, uh, just just. Uh, that's quite the spread. We'll we'll add it to the show notes. People are yes, like, what is that? Yes, well, I'm that's sorry. Amazing. I had to document
3: it. <laughs> wow, that's a quite the magazine to flip through with your Whatever mom while you home for the holidays. Whatever works, oh, Bridget. Also, good t- Good title for a magazine with a spread about dildos, Whatever Works. Exactly. Absolutely,
2: Whatever Works. Absolutely. Yeah.
3: <laughs> so, Andy, Bitch has gone from a zine to a magazine to now a nonprofit. So what, is, what does Bitch look like today?
2: Wow. Um, well, we are, yeah, we are a, a nonprofit organization. Um we have managed to really weather a lot of um, the kind of both magazine industry downturns and, you know, sort of feminist, uh, you know, sort of the sort of growing pains of being a feminist organization in a time when feminism uh, is really contested, as really active, is, you know, becoming really popular. And so um, right now we are just trying to, you know, sort of do everything we do the best we can do it with what we have. And um, so we still publish a quarterly magazine. We have a very active website. We have two podcasts that we publish We have a program called Bitch on Campus that brings speakers from from Bitch uh, to colleges and universities all over North America and also works with uh, professors and women's studies and communications departments to bring material from Bitch into the classroom. We have a new editor-in-chief, Yvette Dion, who's wonderful. We have a director of community, which we didn't have until about two years ago, we've really been able to expand in, in ways that I, you know, in all my sort of pie-in-the-sky idealism of 20 years ago, really would not have imagined. And we have sort of built a, a community of people who to whom we feel accountable. And I think that's part of being a reader-supported organization is that, you know, you learn that your readers have a stake in what you do and that you have a responsibility to them, not to, you know, do everything they want, but to, you know, hear their concerns and listen to what they think is important. And that kind of, uh, symbiotic relationship has been incredibly powerful for us, and we feel really, really lucky that we are still here and that we're still able to, you know, do the work that we do.
3: Well, I, you, I mean, I feel lucky that you're still out there doing so much great work. Like, we, we we, are lucky to have such an amazing resource for current feminists, for budding feminists, for all of us. So, so thank you so much for... Um, you know, starting this beautiful, messy, hilarious, amazing thing. And thank you so much for being here on the podcast today.
2: Yes, thank you for having me. This was really fun.
3: So, Andy, where can folks find out more about what you're up to?
2: Well, uh, bitchmedia.org is a great place to start uh, for, for you know, bitch, what we do, our programs, who we are, et cetera. Um, bitch Media on Twitter, we're very active, and uh, we try to really highlight not just what we do, but, you know, sort of the, the world of intersectional feminist media. Um, I'm personally at Andy Zeisler on Twitter. And uh, yeah, I do a lot of complaining on the internet.
3: So. <laughs> Don't we all? Thanks again yep. for being here, Andy.
2: Yeah.
1: That was so cool. I'm so glad we got to do that. And we got to look a little bit more into Bridget's journey into feminism. And speaking of, we would love to hear from you listeners. What was your journey into feminism like? And what was there any piece of media or any specific thing that helped you on this journey? We, we were thinking about doing follow-up episodes and looking into your responses. So please, please, please let us know. You can find us on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. You can find us on Twitter at podcast, and we love hearing from you in email. That is MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com We'd love to hear from you. Please let us know what your journey to feminism was like.